This is The Guardian. Hi, everybody. It's Max here. Just to say the incredibly sad news. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. News about John Motson uh, broke just after we finished recording today's podcast. So we will, of course, pay tribute to him in full on Monday. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Football Weekly. The last 16 of the Champions League, not one Premier League team gets a win. What's happened to the best league in the world? TM, question mark. Manchester City dominate Leipzig in the first half without doing a whole lot, but are pegged back by Marco Rosa's side in the second. City vulnerable down their left. Perhaps they shouldn't have got rid of all their fullbacks. A late Romelu Lukaku goal gives Inter a slender advantage over 10-man Porto. Also today, England win the Arnold Clark Cup. There's a big few days for Manchester United and a Premier League preview. Add in a very happy Haitian. Lots of people fighting over a ball in Warwickshire. Your questions, and that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. Uh, Zvonimir says, this is the Modric-Casemiro-Cruz pod lineup, which I presume is, they really don't have a whole lot of time left, uh, but they're still good at the moment. Jonathan Wilson, welcome. <laughs> Morning, how are you doing? Very good, thank you. Hello, Nikki Bandini. Hi. And hello, Barry Glendenning. Hello, Max Rushton. Uh, Michael says, is there a more modern day Champions League tie than a nation state pitted against an energy drink? RB Leipzig won, Manchester City won. I found... Barry, the first half, pretty insipid. But the game really picked up when when Leipzig had a go in the second half. Yeah, it seemed like maybe they were slightly cowed by the reputation of their visitors uh, in the first half and, and they conceded. But uh, they had no reason to be cowed as their manager appeared to tell them at half time. And when they came out for the second half, RB Leipzig were... A little bit higher up the pitch. They were far more aggressive. Um, their manager made a couple of changes and they they got a well-deserved equaliser and had chances to win it. Pep said he was happy with the draw. I'm, I'm not entirely sure that I believe him. I think he probably expected better. And I'd say uh, RB Leipzig will be delighted with the draw, but will possibly feel they could have got another goal to, to take to um, Manchester in whenever it is, two or three weeks' time. Yeah, Pep. Nicky, Pep's been a bit odd these last couple of days, hasn't it? You know, it's this whole kind of what will be will be. I don't really mind about anything. I've never been bothered about results before the game. And afterwards saying, you know, my expectations were not high. 
Uh, I had the feeling the tie would be decided in the second leg. I didn't want to lose 4-0 or 4-3 here. We have four games in 10 days. We come here the day after tomorrow. We fly to Bournemouth. I put all this in perspective. I'm so delighted for the game we played. It's the Champions League, such a demanding competition. I think saying that Guardiola has been a bit odd is almost like the default position we get to every year in the Champions League. You get to the last stage <laughs> of the Champions League. It's like, oh, Pep Guardiola is being a bit odd. And I mean, there's sort of a counterpoint to that, which is they're normally in the last stage of the Champions League, which doesn't happen if you're not doing something right. I, I think for me, it's it's an obvious point to go to, but it, I think it feels even more glaring when Kevin De Bruyne is out. And you just think, how can the plan in this situation... And I do wonder how much this has been sort of influenced by the, the removal of the away goals rule, right? Like there's, there's less urgency for the away team to try and force it. If you think you're going to go back home and win the game anyway, you might feel differently about how you have to approach this game. How is there not a plan to just get the ball to Haaland more? Because that was what really I found sort of so odd about this performance. You haven't got De Bruyne on the pitch. Why is it not more just trust that guy who scores more than a goal a game for you to score a goal for you and, and make this tie easier? Yeah, and, and Wilson, he didn't have a touch, Haaland, in the opposition box, I think, until midway through the second half, which isn't necessarily his fault. But it, it does seem like, I know we're repeating ourselves, and I know you hate repeating yourself. Wilson, but like, <laughs> well, I know but like, you do. <laughs> thank you so much. Uh, it takes one to know one. But but um, it does seem odd, doesn't it? Like, we're not saying get it launched, but like, get it forward quicker. Yeah, I mean, I can see in the first half why that was difficult, because Leipzig sat quite deep in the second half when Leipzig are pressing them it would seem the obvious way of 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 getting around that tactic is go direct a couple of times get the ball into the space behind the Leipzig defence and and give Holland the chance to to run at them and I mean there was there's one he, he had one run at Guardiola where he just sort of you know blazed past him um, and you sort of think I mean I sort of was thinking when that happened that the, the two things, and this is before Gradiol scored, but the two things I sort of really remember Gradiol for are Holland blazing past him there and Messi going past him at the World Cup, and which isn't really, you know, he's a clearly a very, very good defender, but the two things you, I, I was I was sort of at that moment I could I could think of him being involved in were, were getting totally destroyed by forwards. But yeah, it's, it's almost like Gradiola is, feels that's cheating. He doesn't, he doesn't want to, to score goals like that, but it seems a very, very odd thing. And it does seem that for some reason, the only member of that City midfield who's prepared to play that ball forward quickly enough to, to release Holland is De Bruyne. When De Bruyne's not there, there's, there's nobody willing to do that. That pass isn't technically, because Haaland is so good and so quick and so big, there's actually quite a big margin for error. Right when you play a pass to Haaland, it's not necessarily eye of the needle stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and you know, the uh, which gave the Villa game uh, the second goal was actually nowhere near Haaland, but just a ball in behind the defence. The defence knows Haaland somewhere, and it, it was Callum Chambers, wasn't it? He just sort of made a terrible mistake that created a chance from nowhere. Just a ball into a vague area that, that the vast majority of of league footballers could hit ninety times out of hundred. It, it, but I, I guess Guardiola's got this obsession with, with not. So the thing, I, the thing that fascinates me with Guardiola is that his his terror of being counted against seems to cause a situation where he gets counted against, and, and again and again this season we've seen it with C, and I guess we've seen it in the past as well. But it seems to happen a lot this season. They totally dominate a game. They've got this incredibly prolific forward, and yet having dominated for an hour. They're 1-0 up. And somehow they concede to the first 
first chance the opposition have. And it wasn't quite like that last night, but it was a similar pattern of City could easily have been two or three nil by half time. There was a sense they were they were in control. They they that if they really exerted themselves, say say they say they'd been a second leg and they'd been two 0 down and they they had to chase goals. They you sort of fancied they'd have got a second or a third before half time. And then the second half is a totally different pattern. And you're sort of waiting for by the time they scored, you've been waiting for Leipzig to score. And yeah, okay, Forest at the weekend was a, a more extreme case, but again, City dominates, then the opposition have a chance and they score from that chance. And so it just feels like City giving away yeah, but the, the whole the whole point of Guardiola's control is if if you have twenty chances, the opposition have five, you will win the majority of games, but you will lose some because the opposition's having five chances and you might not score any of your twenty. If you have five chances, the opposition have none, you cannot lose. And that I think is what Guardiola's driving at. But what he seems to be doing is reducing the chances his own team have. The opposition still get one or two chances. And for whatever reason, at the minute, they're scoring from what from that one chance. But isn't isn't part of that, Barry? That you know, like Heinrichs came on for, for Leipzig, and he got at Ake, and you've got this situation where Manchester City have let Zinchenko go, they've let Cancelo go, they've spent so much money. I mean, obviously within the rules, but they've still spent so much money, and they don't have a left back. They don't have a left back unless I'm going mad. That's mad. Yes, it is mad, isn't it? <laughs> That's like ridiculous. Like what, you've what you've done me of, again, Max. I have, no, but, but what a failure of recruitment. Like, even if you, you know, presumably a club of that stature has like, here's who we could get in January at any position just in case someone gets injured or someone goes or whatever. And they don't, they don't have it. Well, the, the Cancelo thing is a bit weird. Like, nobody's quite sure what happened there, but I don't think anyone was expecting him to, to get farmed out. And presumably Pep thought they'd cope without a left back and uh, they're not coping particularly well without one and yeah when Heinrich came on or Heinrichs came on he he had a couple of good chances uh, which he didn't take but it did pose United or City problems it's weird isn't it Nicky because the first half was so boring like, and, and, and like Phil says our Man City the most boring team the Premier League has produced since Mourinho's United even Pep looked bored in parts and I think perhaps I don't know if that's we expect too much of Pep's sides because they can't all be Barca 2011, right? So we've got this image of what they should be and, and football is slightly different now. Opposition's counter much quicker. I don't know if that's... Is that an sort of unfair accusation or we just expect City to be just so extravagantly brilliant? I mean, it, it takes two to tango, right? And and I think that Leipzig probably... I don't know. I mean, you, you never know exactly what your opponent's going to do in a game until they start doing it. I think perhaps Leipzig tend to play a more aggressive game than this and they played a more cautious game in that first half than perhaps even Pep was expecting. And and they are capable of being quite a strong defensive side. Obviously, Gvardiol had quite a nice game and and is a very good defender. There's so many things that puzzle me about this game. And we haven't talked about the fact as well that City made no substitutions at all in the game. And, and I saw one report about this game saying, oh, well, you know, the only real options they had to, to change things up off the bench were, were Alvarez and Foden. You think the only real options were a World Cup winner and <laughs> Bill Buddy Foden. Okay, you know, really scraping around for some options there. And, and, and he, you know, yeah. we were talking about his chippiness. Like, that was almost part of the post-game interview as well, wasn't it? That sort of, he had that line about, well, you know, I'm I'm a good enough manager to make these decisions about whether or not I, I bring someone off or not. And, you know, of course you are, Pep. You know, you you know this stuff much better than any of us do sat here watching this. But of course, when 
when that situation plays out and and you don't win the game, you're going to have us scratching our heads about it. Wilson, do you, I mean, Leipzig shouldn't fear going to the Etihad, but still City are, will be the favourites for this tie and should go through. Yeah. Um, and, and yes, they, I think, thought they should have had a penalty in, in injury time as well. And, and so, yeah, could easily have won it 2-1 last night. And, I, you know, I think Heinrichs was, was, was pretty lucky to get rid of that handball. I, I, I accept that it was, it was um, yeah, that the header was... Was it too late? Like you can't like if, if it's it's just it was too late to to be given. I actually I haven't seen it back. Like I saw the appeals and then it was full time and I was sort of quite busy working like doing the games. The cross comes in. The ball's headed at him from I don't know six feet away, so it's it's close to him. And I guess that's why he's got away with it. But there's this sort of odd movement he makes. His hands go up in front of his chest. So the ball, if his hands hadn't been there, the ball would have hit him sort of upper chest, maybe on the chin, somewhere around there. His hands got me, sort of pats it away. So there is this sort of gesture towards the ball. So, I mean, I, 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 I get why it wasn't given, but I, I sort of think if I'd been the Varvish, I'd have been, I'd have been giving it because uh, the, the arm does go towards the ball. It's not that the ball's just hit him. He sort of pushed it away. But you know, I mean, it, it, as far as recent VAR controversies go, it's not, it's not really up there. But sorry to come back to your original point. Yes, City should, should. I mean. But, you know, Premier League teams have, have lost three and drawn one of their four games in the Champions League, uh, the, you know, in this round. And given the sort of uh, the supposed terror of the rest of Europe at how the Premier League is dominating everything, that suggests, uh, you know, a level of underperformance from the Premier League teams. So, so, so maybe not. Question from Alba. I hope I've pronounced that correctly. Given the Premier League is ruining football with its obscene wealth, why aren't English clubs doing better in Europe? I know this season is a small sample size, but shouldn't we expect the beginnings of the kind of domination Spain had for all those years? I, I wonder if, Barry, that's be- that actually because it so happens that three of these four teams just aren't really that good at the moment. They're doing okay in Europe. I mean, all four of them are in the knockout stages of the Champions League and three of the four are in reasonably healthy positions going into the second leg of their the first knockout round, I, I I don't give Liverpool a snowball's chance in hell of overturning their match against Real Madrid, but the other three, I think, are, you know, it's hardly a catastrophe, is it, for English football? I guess it's a question for two weeks' time, isn't it, really? And we find out how many... I think we have seen the beginnings of a Spanish-style domination that three of the four semi-finalists last year were, were English. Is that true? Uh who did Liverpool beat in the semi-final? Villarreal. I don't think they're English. No, they're not. Villa. I, you, know, you can see where the confusion like. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, so yeah, it was, uh, yeah, Liverpool have been in three finals in the last five years. We had an all-English final with Chelsea City. Uh, two English semi-finalists last year. Uh, there's been a, a couple of years recently where there's been three of the four semi-finals have been English. So we might not have been winning it, you know, as as frequently, but they've, they've yeah, the. the at that final stage of the competition, they, they've the last sort of four or five years, there has been a, a significant English presence. So I, I think it it is sort of there under the surface. Yeah, I wonder if it is the dominance of the Premier League, Nicky, actually not necessarily like trying to compare Real Madrid to Manchester City, but it's more like the amount of money that like Bournemouth or Leeds will pay for players compared to teams at the you know, in the bottom end of Serie A or La Liga or the Bundesliga. Yeah, I mean that's that's hugely the, the difference. I mean the, the fact that the, the top teams in Italy are 
in the middle now of the the, the, the top 20 in the Delight rankings because you've just got more and more Premier League teams pushing up and the Delight Money League rankings are heavily dominated by Premier League teams in, in the top 20 and onwards. The money thing is real and I, I would really caution against making the assumption, as, as has just been said, that these ties at the halfway point are going to end the way they do. I think you know, the counterpoint of that from the Italian side is it's the first time, according to Opta, that there's ever been three Italian teams have won their opening leg of the Champions League round at the same time. And it doesn't mean they're going through. I wouldn't feel particularly confident that Milan are going through with the game to come away to Tottenham. So that's um, very much up in the air. And, and when Inter Porto will get to in a second, the only one you really feel like is in the is in is not in the balance for Italian clubs is Napoli winning 2-0 um against uh, uh Frankfurt. So I, I think we're very much at half time and I think the the um the removal of the away goals rule has definitely changed how we should frame some of these results. I think one nil loss away in Europe used to feel quite bad because you then know if your opponent comes and scores one goal at your place you're in a lot of trouble. That's just not true anymore. So I, I think that yeah, caution with these uh, these results. I think there's, there's a way to go. Uh, let's talk about Inter Porto. Nicky, big moment for Romelu Lukaku, isn't it? Yeah, really sort of huge moment for him because he scored at the weekend from the penalty spot and that was a retake. So there was a bit of a sense of like, okay, I think to, watching it, it almost felt like there was this communal will of like, let's just get your goal, Romelu. Like, okay, we're gonna, everyone's sort of making this easy for you. It's a penalty, all right. You can have another bite today. Like, we'll get it across the line. But this was... This was something different. And to me, he still looks very much not the player who was sort of dominant and swaggering for them as they won the league under Antonio Conte. He looks heavier. And, you know, I, I haven't got the inside measurements from Inter of what he's been weighing You're on the scale. You're not weighing him every day, Nicky. <laughs> right. But, but watching him, he, re- he really looks it. Like he looks, I think, I think that was the thing that really stood out for him in, in that previous stint at Inter was he became explosive again. He became this sort of bullish, explosive player who would just be throwing defenders everywhere because when he accelerated, it was like a a freight train coming straight ahead. And I don't know, maybe he's still a freight train, but he's one of those really long ones you see in America that just seem to be going and going and going forever and without really sort of knocking anything out of the way. I I, I, I think that he's, he's not there yet. But what you saw... In this moment, in in the key moment of this of this tie so far, was that even without that, he still knows where the goal is. He still knows how to position himself in the box to win a header. He still knows how to time the, the jump to get that header, and he still has that sharpness of mind when the ball comes back off the post to be the one reacting to it and, and getting a shot right the second time. So those are already valuable assets that are, are going to be important to Inter in, in the remaining part of the season. I do have the inside track and can tell you that. Romelu Lukaku is currently weighing in at 103 kilos. I heard that said on the coverage last night. Because, yeah, Fabrizio Romano uh, tweeted something that the inter-chairman had said that uh, Lukaku's carrying a bit... I don't know if he's been injured or not, or he's just back Yeah, he's been injured most of the season, yeah. Yeah, so he's, that, that would explain why he's not... Um, he's carrying a bit of extra timber... But yeah, it was interesting on BT Sport, uh, Rio Ferdinand, who I guess is probably around the same height as Lukaku. Uh, he said when he was playing, he was 86 kilos was his fighting weight, so which would suggest Lukaku's at least 10 kilos overweight at the moment. So that that's going to make a big difference. Yeah, I, I mean, it was a it was a it was a quite a tight game. It was quite a spicy game, actually, wasn't it? There was a you know. Uh, 
that there was like the fun fight between Anano and Jekko, and then there was that big sort of melee. Otavio got booked, and that was slightly harsh, and he got sent off. Um, and actually, Anano made a brilliant double save, Nicky, to 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 keep it at nil nil, didn't he? Yeah, the, there were a couple of really big saves. I mean, Anano's double save was 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 massive, and and um, I think that the the last attempt from training was offside, but yeah, still sort of really sort of sharp goalkeeping. At the other end, Jugo Costa actually made a, a fantastic save before half time from from I think it was from Bastonia to corner. I thought like I felt like it was definitely a, a spicy game. Definitely two teams who were, were playing a bit on the edge of their nerves. Um, but to some extent, it seemed like Porto kind of knew what they were doing. I mean, they were being the more cautious. It definitely felt like one of those situations where they were inviting Inter forward, inviting Inter forward. And look, both managers in Zaghi knows a bit about counter-attacking football as well. Wasn't getting totally sucked into it, but in fact, they, they sort of maybe were the the more the team I felt like were more dangerous until two things happened. One of which is Otavio sending off. And, and the second one is a really stupid yellow card. And I have to say it was odd statistic that popped up that apparently this was the first sending off of his entire career. And I don't get to watch the Portuguese top division every week, but he seems like quite a chippy player. And I did have a look and he's got plenty of yellow cards. So I don't know how he's managed it playing like that because he, he definitely the second yellow card was pretty stupid for a player who's already on a booking, whatever you think about the first one. So that was one part of it. But I also thought that when Inter brought Brozovic into the game in the second half, that really changed things as well. He has just a a, a degree of sort of, I think, sophistication to his game, a degree of sort of control that he can exert in a complicated, high-level match like this that perhaps Chalanoglu can't. And um, and I think that was a, a, a really big sort of significant shift in the game as well. So it'd be interesting to see in the second leg if if Brozovic, who's also been out with injury, but has got this slightly odd relationship going on with, with Simone and Zaghi at the moment. It'll be interesting to see whether he um, gets in the starting lineup for that second leg because I thought he was a real difference maker. Uh, Pepe will be 40, by the way, uh, by the time the second leg comes around. What a legend. Um, I, I'd love to get your take on Napoli, because I know you've got to go at the, at the end of part one, um, who was so brilliant yesterday against Frankfurt. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people in Italy were waiting for this game to see almost, because they've been so dominant in Serie I mean, it's 15 points clear, and it's almost making this historic event. I mean, the first Scudetto since um Diego Maradona, 33 years. It's making it almost seem boring, like, because... It's so obvious it's going to end that way, right? Um, and so there's been this sense of, is, is Serie A just that bad? Is it just that no one is giving them any competition? And look, there, there is something in that. The, the, the rest of the competition, even if you just look at like average points, is, is below where you'd expect second place teams to be. Um, but I think this was a sort of sharp reminder that, no, this team's actually just really good. Um, and again, Things were made easier for them by a red card for the opposition. But even before that, there was only one team in this tribe. Frankfurt didn't even try to play them, honestly, in the first half. Just sort of tried to cling on for dear life. And um, and as soon as Kvaratskhelia found that little bit of room, the back heel, all of that stuff, it just they've, they've got that swagger about them at the moment that's so irresistible. Um, actually, should say that Taremi, I think it was, tried a back heel that very nearly came off in the first half of Porto last night as well. It would have been fun to see that happen twice in two nights. But no, Napoli are. I'm, you, well, you couldn't have asked for more of them in the first leg than that. They look very, very convincing. Uh, all right, that'll do for part one. Uh, Nikki, you may go. Don't get any Sid Lowe type ideas, though. Uh, <laughs> uh, just, just purely cameos. I won't. Don't worry. 
Thank you, Nicky. That'll do for part one. Uh, part two, we'll look ahead to the Europa League, the Carabao Cup, the Premier League, and talk the Arnold Clark Cup too. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Uh, a massive few days for Manchester United. They've got Barcelona in the Europa League. I know a lot of you will be listening to this after that game has been played. Then they've got the Carabao Cup final. It's sort of fascinating, Wilson, to know how they, you know, how they approach both games. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they're sort of in the title race, I think, aren't they? Mm, yeah, possibly. Definitely. Yeah, um, yeah the, the City are clearly in the title race and they're only three points behind. Therefore, the United must be in the title race. Yeah, the, the, these two things have to take priority over the league at the moment. So I imagine that they'll... they'll, they'll yeah, you... Beating Barcelona, even if it's only the Europa League, is still you know a big statement. It's still a thing people will remember. The fact that they have such a history of great games against Barcelona, you know, Cup Cup game in '84 is one of the my earliest footballing memories. When they came back from two 0 down to win three, won three 0 in the second leg, to win three two. Um, you know, sort of arguably Brian Robson's finest hour. Um, then the Cup Winners Cup final in in '91. Then the the, the the two group games in in '99, which are both which actually the first leg of this was reminiscent of. So, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm sure they'll pick a near enough full-strength team for this. And then, you know, it's a final on Sunday. So, and, and, and actually for once, you know, I think in the past, United might have sort of been slightly sniffy about the League Cup, but they're not in a position to be sniffy about anything at the minute. So, so yeah, it's a huge uh, four days. I did enjoy the panel in the latest Squires cartoon about the prospect- prospective United takeover where he says, uh, some success star fans of the club who sit third in the Premier League and are playing Barcelona on Thursday before a cup final on Sunday <laughs> say they just want the world's fourth richest football club to compete financially. <laughs> uh, my favourite of that Squires cartoon was uh, people trying to compare uh, you know, uh, the Saudis owning Newcastle or Qatar potentially buying Manchester United with things other things you have an emotional investment in with someone going well I was born within yards of the gherkin but I've always been a shard fan my dad was a shard fan and my granddad's a shard fan and then it just pans out the shard with someone going come on and (laughs) he's a clever man is David Squires and he listens so hi David I hope you're doing very well I suppose they they must be favourites for the Carabao Cup Barry especially given Newcastle's drop-off in form their goalkeeper, I don't know if it's a crisis or not, but that is, you know, Nick Pope is, has had such a brilliant season. Well, I haven't looked at the odds, but I'm going to 
go out on a limb and guess Manchester United are favourites and probably correctly so, but I still think Newcastle are going to win this. Uh, I could be wrong, but it's cup final. I'm not going to say Newcastle will be more motivated than United because Manchester United because they probably won't be. Uh, all the players will be up for this. But the loss of Nick Pope is huge. He's been brilliant for Newcastle this season. But I suspect whoever comes in for him, and I guess it's going to be Loris Karius, they could have the game of their lives. You don't know. And I yeah, I, I think it's... It's a coin toss, but on, on current form, definitely you would say United should win. It's interesting when we talk about sports washing and we look at Qatar possibly coming into Manchester United and we look at you know the Newcastle ownership and Newcastle fans listening to this will say, well, hang on, you didn't mention Abu Dhabi with Manchester City. When we talked about City, and I don't know if we're guilty of always bringing it up with Newcastle, but there will be a lot of talk about that this weekend because it is the first final that Newcastle have been in you know, for, for years and years. I don't think they will much talk. I mean, we'll talk about it because we're snowflake, wokey, pinko liberals. But, you know, they've been discussing the potential Qatari takeover on Sky Sports for days and it's never brought up sport, the question of sports washing. It might get a mention in passing, but that's very much a token mention in passing. So I'm not sure. Who do you expect to talk about it? That's a very good question. Um, maybe I'm not listening or watching the right things. Or maybe I am. I don't know. But yeah, no, 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 it's a good point. I just feel like, I feel like we should bring it up and then I feel like, well, we didn't talk about it with City, although we did obviously talk about their charges last week or maybe the two things are separate. I don't know if I'm, I don't actually know what point I'm trying to make. We've, we've sort of just got used to seeing this 15 years now, City. So it sort of feels like that's just a, you know, the, the status quo, it's just how it is. I mean, whereas for Newcastle, you know, why are they in this final? Because, you know, the investment from, from the Saudis. So this is the equivalent for City of when they won the FA Cup in 2011. So, I, I mean, maybe our coverage in 2011 should have been different, but uh, I don't, it's, it's just it's it's just very diff- difficult with City because it's it's so familiar that to say it every time starts to sound absurd, whereas with Newcastle, this is a new stage of their their journey. And so it, it, it's, it's, and that journey is fueled by, by Saudi wealth. And obviously the managerial genius of of Eddie Howe, which we should never neglect. Premier League uh, preview. We'll just do a few minutes on this. Fulham play Wolves uh, on Friday night. They can go level on points with Newcastle, uh, who are fifth, uh, with a win. Um, You've got Everton Villa, which feels like another big game for Sean Dice. Leeds versus Southampton. Javi Gracia coming in. Arsenal go to Leicester. Do you think Leicester can get anything out of it? I mean, it's interesting to see, you know, there was the twists and turns have begun, Barry. And Leicester looked actually really good against Manchester United for 25 minutes last weekend. Yeah, I mean, they're a completely different side with James Madison in it. And he's playing well now that he's back from injury. I can't see them getting anything from this game, but it wouldn't be massively surprising if they did. So I, I think Arsenal would beat them. I mean, two huge games down at the bottom, uh, West Ham Forest and Leeds Southampton are, are both, they're the ones that caught my eye this weekend. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, West Ham, West Ham, as you said on Monday, we haven't really talked about them in terms of the relegation fight, but they are actually in the, <laughs> literally in the relegation zone. So perhaps we should. And and look, City go to, Man City go to Bournemouth, uh, Crystal Palace, Liverpool will be interesting given what happened to Liverpool um, in midweek against Real Madrid. And then, Chelsea go to Spurs with my Spurs hat on. I can just see 
all those XGs becoming Gs for Chelsea on Sunday. But like Graham Potter, how much? It's hard to know Wilson how much pressure Potter is under. I mean, the 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 word from the club is that they they have faith in him and that they're going to be patient. And you know, if they are looking at underlying numbers, the underlying numbers are pretty good. I mean, since the World Cup, they've played nine games, taken ten points, which obviously is not great. Nine league games, taking ten points, which obviously is is not great. But they've had the better XG in seven of those games, and if you, you know, if you map it out as you know, as, as if, uh, you know, if you award points for the XG, so uh, if the XG is within 0.5 of each other, you say you call it a draw. I think they'd have taken 20 points, and if they had those 20 points, they'd be to be fifth. I think. Can you do? Can you actually do that though? Because I saw I saw the the XG for Liverpool Real Madrid, and I think Liverpool had two and a bit, and Real Madrid had 1.8 or something. Which feels completely ridiculous, given that football. Well, I mean, yeah, I saw that, and I was I was intrigued by that, and and then I saw that Real Madrid had scored a five or seven shots, and maybe maybe our perception is skewed by by goals. I was talking to a to a coach who's a mate of a mate. Uh, he's a coach at a Premier League club. He he was working with his club, and tactically they they got this particular game very badly wrong, and they were three 0 down at half time. Uh, the same sort of goal being conceded each of the three goals, and then it turned out they they won the XG quite comfortably because second half they had all the ball and had a whole series of of half chances, and the team they were playing just sort of sat in and well yeah okay if you score once we'll change how we play but for now we're just going to conserve energy and you can have a ball and see what happens. So he 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 was he was saying that the things like XG you've got to be very careful to look at them in context and yes they give you a general picture. But that that particular game, yeah, he said, well, you know, his side had been absolutely battered for the first forty-five minutes, and that conditions what then happens in the second half. So I, I guess it's similar with the Liverpool Real Madrid game that uh, Liverpool probably racked up a very high XG in that first 20-25 minutes. Once Real Madrid had gone ahead, the momentum was so obviously with them that, that yeah, they didn't really need to do anything, and they just sort of picked Liverpool off on the break a couple of times. So so yeah, I think you do have to put it in context. I just, I just think when it's a recurring pattern. As it has been with Chelsea under Potter. But I mean, the interesting thing is, why was that a pattern at Brighton as well? Um, and is, is it just he's slightly unfortunate that two clubs he hasn't had a centre forward, or he hasn't had a goal scoring centre forward, or is there something about the types of chances teams create? And, and yeah, I, I, th- I think professional analysts maybe can give us an answer on that. I, I, I don't sort of feel equipped to, to do that. I think it's time to introduce a new metric, XG over P by B plus C, which is. Expected goals divided by P Potter by Brighton plus Chelsea because it does seem, as as Jonathan said, weirdly coincidental that, you know, he goes from Brighton to Chelsea yeah. and, and no one's scoring. Yeah, my fear would be that actually they were good and creating loads of chances, but that Southampton game was different. And so that'll be interesting to see if there is a reaction. But they still they still won the XG very comfortably. I think I think from memory it was one point six to hang on, I've got I've got it here. Hang on, what was it? It was I, I think it was yeah, it was one point one point six two to not point six two. Yeah. So but it, it didn't feel fair enough, fair enough. It, 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 it felt, I, I agree with you. It felt different. It it it, it felt different, yeah. I, no, I would accept that. Anyway, anyway, I mean I have no faith that uh, Tottenham will <laughs> we'll beat them uh, uh, England uh, won the uh, Arnold Clark Cup at Ashton Gate last night they retained the trophy beat Belgian women 6-1 they didn't really have that difficult opposition uh, in this tournament um, obviously the Guardian 
Women's Football Weekly is where you get a very detailed uh, analysis of all of those things. And they'll be going big in the World Cup in Australia and New Zealand in the summer. Had a wonderful email from Jean-Paul Juan Delva, who says, Hi, Football Weekly team. A long-time listener, first-time emailer. I just wanted to reach out to express my excitement, jubilation, exhaustion, and relief that Haiti has qualified for the World Cup in Australia and New Zealand. I can honestly say I now know how Ellis James felt when Wales qualified for Qatar. Um, Dumonet, our equivalent of Gareth Bale, scored two to secure the win. I came to Australia from Haiti when I was six, fleeing from Tonton Makute, roughly translated as uh, bogeyman, uh, or boogeyman, he says, with my sister in 1996. We've built a life for ourselves in Melbourne. As you can imagine, there aren't many Haitians in Australia, but for the last 30 minutes of the match, all my work colleagues in the cafe were as Haitian as they come. I apologise if this email is all over the place. It's like taking meth and trying to sit, sit still. <laughs> it's very hard to do. I wouldn't know. Uh, he says, meth being a metaphor for my excitement before, you know, announcing that he's taking meth for the world via this podcast. Uh, thank you for the enjoyment you bring, your loyal listener, Jean-Paul. Um, congratulations to you. And we will watch them with interest in the World Cup. Uh, as I say, go to the Guardian Women's Football Weekly. I hope I hope they put up a better show than Ellis James's <laughs> Wales. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Perhaps Ellis James's Wales were on meth and trying to sit down, which would be a hard way to win a football match, wouldn't it? Uh, anyway, that'll do for part two. Part three, Kevin Miles from the FSA, friend of the pod, will join us to talk about uh, the uh, white paper on football governance. Spin your passion into a business of Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. The long-awaited white paper on football governance is set to be published today. It's set to adopt many of the key recommendations from Tracy Crouch's fan-led review of football governance. The paper is expected to begin the legislative process to bring in a new regulator for football. Kevin Miles, friend of the pod from the FSA, who are part of the fan-led review, joins us now. Hey, Kev, how are you? Very well, actually. I'm very, uh, very excited. It's, uh, you're going to be a little bit of a football governance nerd to get excited about a white paper publication, but it could be quite a big day for football, actually. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure government white paper are three words that will get many football fans excited, uh, but 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 why is it important? Well, it, it gives us an opportunity to, to, to reset some of the things that go wrong in football on a regular basis. Uh, it introduces an element of independent regulation so that uh, basically football clubs don't just make up their own rules that they have to stick to, but it imposes some sort of more objective and independent uh, playing field, if you like, economic playing field, financial regulations at the centre of this, to try to make sure that we have some equitable distribution of the money of the game throughout the pyramid, but also that we have you know, some financial controls that we protect against owners who are greedy or I mean, effectively economic vandals in some of the football clubs uh, up and down the country. It gives a lot, it'll give a lot of protection in those sort of areas against people who come into football 
to make money out of it without any care for what the importance is to communities or to people in their lives. Can I start at the like right at the top of the pyramid? Would it stop? Would it have any effect on nation states coming in and buying football clubs, as in new possible ones or ones that are already here or not? I don't think the plan is to make any of the issues around the owners and directors text retrospective. So they're not going to like to go and you know and to question deals that have been done in the past. There will be uh, clearly an owners and directors test, which is more rigorous than what we've had so far. And I think the plan is also to make it ongoing. So that in the past, the situation has been with the owners and directors test. And if you have a clean record or they can't find anything on you at the time of purchase, then you're in and there's little they can do about it otherwise. There will be a new football governance code that owners and directors will have to adhere to in terms of how they run their business. So, I mean, you've had the situation in the past, for instance, where the, the Oystons at Blackpool passed the owners and directors test incredibly the time they took over the, the, the club. Their performance and their custodianship of the club, never mind what they did in their personal lives, uh, seemed to underline, undermine the idea that they were fit and proper people to own a football club. So there'll be some sort of ongoing checking of how the how people run their clubs, how what the custodianship of their clubs are alike, which will stop them loading the clubs with huge amounts of debt, trying to make them sustainable. I don't think there is a plan from the government's point of view to impose any restrictions on who can own a football club that they don't impose anywhere else. So they're not about to set up themselves in moral judgment upon human rights issues. I think the attitude is, uh, you know, if the British government deems it fit and appropriate to deal with a regime then why should we expect football to operate to a higher standard? And they'll you know, discuss, uh, but I don't think it's something the regulator, the regulator is about to get involved with. Am I right in thinking that it will kind of ring fence, if that's the right word, traditions like colours of kit or, or and things like that, that like things that matter to to football fans? There's lots of stuff. I understand it all hangs together. I mean, we'll, we'll know better when it's actually published later today in terms of the the, uh, the detail. Um, but it's largely based on the fan-led review report, what became known as the Crouch Report. And my understanding is that they've taken a huge amount of the recommendations from that. Now, one of the points that was made about that report is that it has to be taken holistically. You can't just take out individual bits and protect them. So in other words, there's no point uh, throwing a lot of money down the pyramid in solidarity if it's then going to be wasted uh, because of bad financial controls and bad uh, financial practices. Further down, further down the league. So you have to take the financial controls and the, the good corporate governance alongside any proposals for further wealth distribution. But yes, our understanding is that there will be the creation of uh, fan advisory boards, there'll be the creation of uh, structures for fans to have input at every club level. There is There will be a reinforcement of FA rules requiring uh, clubs to demonstrate popular support, fan support, for any of the heritage changes that you mentioned. And also underpinning that, the regulator will have the right to intervene and determine whether a stadium move can be sanctioned or which competition a club can take part in. Because so we, we had you know, four tests, particularly in the broad brush uh, approach to, the, to the, the regulator, one of which was, can it prevent the European Super League, another breakaway uh, competition? And I think there's a tick against that one. There's what, will it put fans at the heart of decision-making or... Um, you know, at least in, in, of engagement 
in all levels of the game, including every, at, at their own club, it's a tick against that. Will there be some more money distributed? A big tick against that. And will it provide a bit of protection to prevent clubs like Berry suffering the fate that they did? And I think there's a big tick against that. So on all the main issues that we've been involved in, there seems to be some very strong recommendations here. Distribution from the Premier League down the pyramid feels like a good thing. I'm not just saying that as a lower league fan. It feels very sensible. But my understanding is the Premier League... There, there's a sort of loose understanding that that should happen, but there's no agreement, right? There's no figure. There's no acknowledgement of how that will work. The cynic in me thinks the Premier League will sort of find a way to do what they want. Well, I think there is an expectation from government that they want football to come to an agreement themselves so that the government don't have to intervene. And uh, look, let's, let's be fair about this, Max. There always has been a substantial amount of wealth distribution from the Premier League further down the pyramid. There's an interesting philosophical discussion taking place now at the moment about whose money is it? Because the strict legal definition, certainly one that the Premier League prefer, is that the money belongs to their shareholders because they're the ones who generate the commercial contracts and the, you know, the, the league does, uh, and the money is then distributed among the shareholders. It's their money, and out of the goodness of their hearts, they give some further down the pyramid. The Football League's position is slightly different. They regard it as say, well, the Premier League generates this money because of the position that they have at the top of the English pyramid, but it's football's money. Historically, uh, you know, the football contracts, you know, the, uh, insofar as there were big broadcast contracts in those days, um, but money was raised for the game as a whole. And they still regard that as football's money. And there's a disproportionate amount of football's money is kept at the very top. So they think it should be shared out more. But there always has been, compared to most other countries, the Premier League shares a lot more than most other countries do. However, um, there are arguments both, both about the quantum of how much money is spent but all is, is shared, but also how it's done. Because we we have a situation where the money that goes down into the Football League, the big majority of it takes the form of what they call uh, parachute payments, which Rick Parry at the Football League is, I think, probably more accurately characterised as trampoline payments, uh, you know, to money that goes down the close to make sure that they can afford to bounce straight back uh, into the into the Premier League. There are clearly honourable exceptions to that, if Barry and uh, the don't like <laughs> That's below the belt. <laughs> but I, I think what they want to do is they want to see football arrive in an agreement between themselves. At the moment, though, the Crouch report was, what, 50? 16 months ago and they were given a couple of months to try to come to agreement and then another year to come to some arbitration there has not been any meaningful discussion let alone an agreement between the leagues about what the wealth distribution should look like so what the regulator or the white paper proposes is that regulator has what they call backstop powers so should the football authorities and the leagues not come up with a solution to the deal that they would be able to impose one there will be there's some interesting discussion about how they arrive at that. One of the ideas that has been under discussion, and we'll see if it emerges in the white paper later or not, is that they go to some sort of binding arbitration on a final best offer. So that you get the both of the parties to put in a sealed bid of what they think the uh, their best offer should be, and that the regulator would then choose between those two. And the idea behind that is that you get a convergence of the two your differing opinions because... If you leave too much of a gap between them, you're not going to get yours picked. 
uh, as, as the solution. It's quite, uh, quite an imaginative way of trying to get people to come together. There's an element of jeopardy there, but it might encourage some sensible negotiation and figuring on it. And that decision would be based not just around what's the best number, but what's the logic behind it? What's your explanation behind it? What does it achieve? How does it benefit the game? How does it deal with some of the problems about competitive balance, but also about sustainability? What's the process now? Um, forgive me for not exactly understanding even what a white paper is, really. But, you know, this goes to government. They vote it through. What, then there's another vote and another vote? Like How, how quickly until cowboy owners are getting done by this and fans have feel they have power over their football clubs? Well, the, the intention is that the regulatory powers, the club licensing system, should be enforced by the start of the 2024 season. Now, there are processes that can happen. There's a lot of things that need to happen, but there are processes that can happen in parallel rather than in series. So um, there has been discussion about the establishment of a shadow um, regulator. In other words, you start to pull together some of the people who will be have this responsibility so they can start preparing their staff, preparing their thinking about how they want to do it. You don't, don't expect this white paper to have detailed answers about how all of these things are going to happen. A lot of that will be led to the regulator, left to the regulator to try and work that out. And that's not just one bloke sitting at home with a big notebook fretting about it. There will be a team of experts brought in. And the idea is that that can be established to start doing work on that before the parliamentary process is necessarily finished. But there will be uh, a white paper is effectively a government setting out what its proposals will be so they can get some feedback on them before they actually go to the legislation. There will be a three-month period of what they're calling targeted consultation. So they're not asking everybody on the street to come back with their opinions. We've had already the biggest consultation of football fans and of people in football there's ever been in the course of the family review process itself. So the idea is that they will discuss with the stakeholders what their various plans were to get some comments back on the best way to make them work. And then there will have to be legislation that goes through Parliament. I mean, there's all sorts of fascinating uh, things that, that could happen. One of the pressures, obviously, at the end of it is the, there's a possibility of a general election, in which case, what happens to that legislation then? And I know at one stage, people from the Premier League were saying, oh, well, this might never happen because we might run into the general election and then uh, you know, the legislation falls and then it depends on whether the Labour government coming in, if there is one, wants to pick it up and will it be their top priority, etc. Having spoken to the Labour from bench last week, they said actually a general election would probably speed up the process because they, they have this little process where uh, in the event of an imminent election, any ele legislation has already been tabled, the two front benches come together and they can agree to nod stuff through to make sure it gets through quickly before the election. And the Labour front bench have said, if that happens, they will nod this legislation through. So it, it looks like it could well be sorted out in time the club licenses just to operate for the 2024 season. So, you, I mean, you think this is a sort of game-changing, pivotal, like huge moment for the future of football from the absolute top to grassroots? It has the potential to do that, and it, it offers a protection against things getting any worse, which I think is the uh, is, is one of the things. It, it was introduced partly as a defensive thing to stop club communities losing their clubs, uh, but I think it does ha it does have the potential there as well. I mean, it, it, it's interesting to see what some of the responses have been. Even the Premier League is is now reluctantly. I mean, they put a statement out last night, which is a sort of a fairly petulant uh, acceptance of all that. Or it is going to happen. 
Um, and there are, we know that there have been clubs in the Premier League who have pushed back against the idea of fan engagement and having a fan voice inside their club in a, in a structured way. But I think a lot of clubs, uh, even some of the, the ones you would expect from less, have actually warmed to the idea and seen the advantage to this. Um, it, a progressive club will see the advantage of getting the ideas and support of the approval of the fan base before they embark on any major undertakings. You want to keep your, your customer base on board. Uh, we know that there are big Premier League clubs who support the idea of independent regulation because it provides an element of market certainty for their operations. At least you know if there's a regulator whose remit is set out by statute and limited by statute, it's not going to have suffer from huge mission creep, and it's going to lay out in advance about what its objectives are, what it's trying to do in terms of sustainability and the and the you know the market uh, situation they want to create. It's better to have that set out and know where you are than to have the rules that you're trying to operate by being set and altered constantly by votes of your competitors. And I know that some of the big clubs, the even some of the ESL breakaway clubs, are saying actually. Are saying, actually Independent regulation of the game is a much more reliable way of organising the economic the, the economic ecosystem of football than uh, just allowing the six who can get a majority of fourteen clubs in the Premier League to vote for something because there's no self interest comes into all of those decision making processes. Kevin, before we let you go, uh, just quickly, um, you are not happy with the uh, LNER train line for not serving or allowing booze on trains back up to Newcastle on Sunday? Well, I have to declare a personal lack of interest in this. and you know, uh, I'll not be travelling back on um, on Sunday because I'll be staying down in London for an extra night's celebration. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm looking forward to my first ever encounter with an open-top bus uh, at, at some stage. But So I'm not directly... Well, are, you, are you doing a sightseeing tour, Kevin? <laughs> But yeah, off time side, yeah. And, um, no, I, I just think it's a bit disproportionate. I do think it's a bit, um, it, it's a bit unnecessary because if it was anybody else, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not aware of dry trains on the way back from the royal funeral, which is a, you know a bigger event. It's not just about the numbers. I think a lot of people will be celebrated out by um, Sunday night, uh, and I, I just don't think there's a, a real sort of. Uh, it's it's going to be a party atmosphere, win or lose. It'll be a party atmosphere. It's not going to be particularly. I, I did like the, the statement, the, the phrase in the statement. You said it was to prevent unnecessary antisocial behaviour. Because clearly, <laughs> there's a level of antisocial required. Uh, but, Absolutely uh, necessary. Yeah. I mean, try enforcing that is what I thought. Do you mind me asking you, as, as a football fan with a conscience who does so much brilliant stuff, how you wrestle? We talked about a bit earlier on the pod how you have wrestled with Newcastle doing well and the ownership. Well, I think part, part of the issue is that I've had very little say in any of this at all. I mean, nobody asked me who Mike Ashley should tell the football club to. Nobody asked me how long he should hang on that the fans weren't really consulted in this. So I, I do think that even I, even I, um, as woke as I am, bridle a little bit against this in sort of impl tacit implication that we are somehow complicit in human rights abuses because we've had Saudis taking cut over our uh, football club and we are happy to see them spend the money. We've had very little input into that. Um I think I think it is. It's a real challenge for football fans because I don't think anybody with a conscience can feel entirely relaxed about it. 
by the other hand, I also accept the argument as well, or at least understand the argument. It says, well, in in a regime where the British government does business with the Saudis selling them arms, why should you expect a higher moral stance from football than you are prepared to do anywhere else? Now, personally, I'd be one of the people voting that we don't do trade with the Saudis on selling them arms either. So, you know, at least I think I'm fairly consistent on that. But... I, I just, it, is, it does present you with a challenge. Um, I, I think there's, you know, uh, you'd have to be particularly insensitive and unfeeling to think that there, there wasn't an issue there for us to be concerned about. Always good to talk to you, Kevin. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, enjoy the open top double bus parade. Please don't. Around London. <laughs> Please don't. We'll see you in the fountain on Trafalgar Square. Just before a, a, a cup final, and, and by the way, I mean, um, some of the negotiations that are taking place between the Football League and the Premier League now about the status of the Carabao Cup, look, it, it's got to be clear to every right-thinking football fan that this is the most important trophy in European football. Um, it's, the, <laughs> it's the, the senior trophy uh, of all of them. But it's probably a very generous spirit. So I'm, I'm going to say something really positive. I actually think Sunderland will stay up this <laughs> Newcastle have now emulated the Sunderland team of 2014 who got to the League Cup. I, I may yet be awarded it. And lose, lost against the team from Manchester. I hope you achieve a similar level of success. Yeah, but even you could manage the quirk of the idea that your your second-choice goalkeeper might get a winner's medal, but only if Newcastle lose. <laughs> There's not many people can pull off a stunt like that. There's a very hassle thing to happen. Cheers, Kevin. All the best. Uh, Kevin Miles there from the Football Supporters Association. On to any other business. Um, Horatio Underpants says, does the Atherston ball game need VAR? Have either of you seen this utterly ludicrous... Cl- I mean, men are just fucking idiots, aren't they? It's just like a thousand men punching the shit out of each other. Um, uh, it's a medieval football game played annually on Shrove Tuesday in the English town of Atherston in Warwickshire. It honours a match played between Leicestershire and Warwickshire in 1199 when teams used a bag of gold as a ball, and which was won by Warwickshire. At one time, similar events were held in many towns throughout England, but Atherston's is now one of at least three such games that are still played each year at Shrovetide. Um, I, I mean, it's ridiculous, Wilson. It's, it's an utterly ludicrous way to spend your time. As far as I can say, it's about a thousand... Maybe 200 men, like, punching the nearest man to them, whether they're on their team or not, above a, <laughs> below a William Hill. Yeah, which which um, I'm sure was also there in 1199. This is the origins of football. And the, there is a theory, and I, I, I have no idea how seriously this should be taken, that this sort of spherical object that you, you try and sort of move to one end of the pitch, and then the goal, I don't know what it is at Atherston, but... In some of these games, it's sort of a hole in the ground. You just have to be no. You just no, the Atherton. You just have to be holding it at the end. I think. Oh, okay, right. I mean, that that seems to encourage violence, frankly. But yeah, you know, a, a lot of them, it's you try to put the ball in the hole. And there's a theory that this is um, a symbolic fertility rite that the ball represents the sun, and you're trying to put it into the ground. And it happens at spring to try and right. uh, impregnate the earth, uh, which then yeah means that basically a goalkeeper is God's condom. In, in, in some ways I'm trying to prevent that happening um, well it seems like a good place to end uh, all of this um, thank you to the two remaining panellists thank you Barry you're welcome thank you Jonathan cheers thank you Football Weekly was produced by Joel Grove with Silas Gray our executive producer is Christian Bennett 
This is The Guardian.